Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of design, building, and remodeling. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling by interviewing some of the top movers and shakers and disruptors who are impacting our great industry. I'm Todd Miller of Isaiah Industries, manufacturer of specialty metal roofing and other building materials. Today, my co-host is Ethan Young. Ethan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good today, Todd. How about you? I'm doing well also. I took a couple days off, so the wife and I have been kind of hanging out at the lake the last few days, so um, it's been very nice. So it's all good. Well, Let's go ahead and jump right into it. I'm kind of, I'm very excited about today's guest. Um, I think this. Oh, we're doing a mission real quick. The challenge words. Ah, my mistake. Just so the audience can be aware, we are going to, we've each picked out a word, but, you know, we're going to try and squeeze in the conversation somewhere. So keep an eye or keep an ear out, I guess, for those. And we have some interesting challenge words. Thank you for that reminder, Ethan. I always forget those and it's even highlighted right on my paper. So thank you. Um, so let's jump right into things. Um, today, our guest is David Applebaum, uh, based in Los Angeles. Uh, David is known, even though this is something he doesn't necessarily gravitate to, or, or but he's known as architect to the stars. Um, he has done work for all kinds of famous names over the years, um, as well as a ton of other folks. Um, but some of the folks he has worked with have included Cuba Gooding Jr., Diane Keaton, Bob Hope, Frank Sinatra, Robert Murdoch, Quincy Jones, and like I said, many other well-known names. Um, but interestingly, he's also been host of National Geographic series, American Mansion. Um, David, welcome to Construction Disruption. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Todd. And uh, thank you, Ethan, for having me here, Todd. Where was my invitation to go with your wife and you well, on the walk? Well, well, Come on. Maybe maybe this summer. You know, right now the lake is nice, but still it's March in Ohio, so it's a little bit chilly out there. But I'll let hey, it go. Maybe this that, summer. That sounds like a good <laughs> excuse. We're okay. <laughs> sounds great. So David, we were introduced to each other by Caroline. Blazowski, who is known as America's Healthy Home Expert. Um, we had had her on an episode um, a few weeks ago. Um, but I also then realized that we have another mutual friend in Eric Gorenson of Around the House. Um, I'm curious, though, can you tell our audience, you know, even though I realize this isn't something that you necessarily throw around a whole lot, but how does one become architect to the stars? Tell us a little bit about your own background and history. I... I hate to say it, but but the operative word, this is not the word of the day, but uh, is luck. Um, I, I mean, certainly you have to have the talent and you have to do the work, but it's like so many other things in life, it's being in the right place at the right time. And quite honestly, frustration can sometimes lead to uh, some kind of luck that you weren't expecting. I mean, I... I did really well in graduate school, and after my thesis, I had quite a few job offers from some of the famous architects here in Los Angeles. And I, for some reason, it didn't feel right. And so I said, okay, well, let me get, and this will kind of give you a little bit of a key to how I operate. It's like, okay, that's very nice, but 
who are you really? Could you give me two or three of your buildings to look at so I can get a feel for what it feels like to be in your buildings before I decide to work for you? And this was a little while ago, and modernism was not quite as popular as it is now. And three of the firms had something to look at in Los Angeles, and two did not. And of the three, two of them only had one building, and they were all over town. And I'm driving miles and miles to get from one to the other, and I'm passing by all these traditional homes and buildings, and I'm thinking, I'm in a really small pool by limiting myself here. I wonder what would happen if I worked for a traditional architect. And so I then did some research and found who I thought was the best in Los Angeles. And he wasn't well known unless you knew. It was what nowadays there's that saying, what, if you know, you know, if you know, you know. Um, It was so funny. I was actually having dinner with one of my classmates who was going to be working for a famous decorator. And I decided to work for Edward Grensbach and we were talking um, and it was a Beverly Hills restaurant uh, and we're having a conversation about, should we, it seems like a better idea. And this guy two tables over walks over and says, if you have a chance to work for Ted Grensbach, you take that job. And I thought, well, there's a sign. And it was really through him that I met everyone. You mentioned my Frank Sinatra job. That all started... (laughs) It's funny how many things start with a fight. I became friends with Caroline over a fight, um, <laughs> uh, which I can get into later on. But uh, I walked into the to my first day at the Grenzbach office, and he says, here's what I'm going to have you work on. And it was a modern home in Malibu for Georgia Frontieri, who owned the, the Rams at the time. And um, which, funny enough, after all of that, when she divorced... Dominic Frontieri, Dominic asked me to do his house later on um, and and a lifelong friendship with the guy who uh, wrote the Twilight Zone theme. So our telephone conversation is wow. interesting. But the point is, uh, he showed me this modern structure and said, so what do you think? And I, like an idiot, I said, do you want to hear what I think or do you want me to tell you what? you want to hear. He said, oh no, I want to hear what you have to say. Well, this was modern. All you, architect school, all you learn is modern. I didn't want to learn modern, but it was like, well, if you move the door to the left, I think you'll get a better view of the ocean. When you walk in, you'll get more surprise. And he just rolled up the drawings and he said, this is my office, not yours. It's your first day. How dare you? I'm going to give you a traditional house, but it's not ready. So I've got a little project for you. And I said, as a, you know, as a transition, I said, okay, he said, do you get starstruck? And I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? He said, it's a train room for Frank Sinatra. And it was like, oh, oh, I just spent two years living in New York where everything was Frank Sinatra. And I was a huge fan. <laughs> Love, you know, I never met him. I just worked with the decorator on this. But th- I came up with an out-of-the-box idea that they really liked. And I won't tell you the circumstances that led to it, but... my old boss and Ted had a little issue and they decided not to hire him to do the next project. And the decorator said, Hey, remember the guy who did the train room? And that's how I got that job. So if that isn't, you know, serendipity and luck, I don't know what is. And, um, I mean, how else, how else do you set that up? I don't know. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm at the, 
risk of, of sounding really stupid here, I do have to ask a question. What's a train room? Because I do not have a train room. I Maybe I need one. I don't know. No such thing as a stupid question. I love <laughs> that. Um, Frank Sinatra was a huge fan of model trains. Okay. That's and if you've ever seen The Big Bang Theory or Young Sheldon, oh, yeah. you know that basically when he was a kid, uh, Sheldon's uh, parents' garage was the train room. And right. uh, Frank even created the city of Hoboken, which had a train station. <laughs> and it was, I only saw pictures of it, but it looked really cute. And I remember at, at one point on the beach house, he turned to Barbara and said, where's my train room? Where are my trains? <laughs> and she said, they're, they're safely tucked away. And, um, and that's all it, you learn things about clients. And um, the first time I actually met Frank Sinatra face to face, um, I went to the house and I knocked on the door and I was pretty nervous because I wasn't sure what I was getting into. I actually called, this is when cell phones were the size of a brick and I had to <laughs> assemble it. It didn't fit in my briefcase in one piece and called the decorator and said, this is Frank Sinatra. Is this a good idea? She said, oh, if he likes you, he's your best friend. There's nothing he won't do for you. If he doesn't like you, just be charming. He'll like you. Don't worry. <laughs> and so I walk in and I'm talking to his wife, Barbara, wearing this beautiful red dress and a macaw matching red right behind her. He wasn't even in the room. And all of a sudden I felt the humidity change in the room. And I <laughs> looked at her with my eyes wide open and I mouthed, is he behind me? <laughs> and she just did one of those side nods and I turned around and there he was in a cashmere robe, blue silk pajamas that were the color of his eyes. And he did not look happy. What's this guy doing talking to my wife? <laughs> and I um, put my hand out and um, she jumped up and got between us and said, hey, this is David Applebaum. He's the guy that did your train room. And he immediately just, from that moment on, there, he exuded warmth, the radiance of love that came from him. Smartest man I've ever met, to be honest with you. And he shook my hand. This is how you know he's smart. Because I don't think he really knew who I was, but he just shook my hand because he knew it was okay and said, big fan. <laughs> and I melted. And the point of the story is, he then looked at me and said, how long have you been here? I said, about 10 minutes. He said, can I offer you a drink? And I said, well, you know, you don't know me well enough yet, but I do a lot of talking. So a glass of water would be lovely. Mm -hmm. And it was, there went, the, the, the warmth went away. You could just see the hairs on his arms. Oh, no. Raising. Oh, no. And he looked at me again and he said, David Applebaum, I thought you were a good architect. Don't you understand how awful water is? It rots wood. It rusts metal and fish shit in it. I'm going to ask you again. <laughs> can I offer you a drink? <laughs> and I hate scotch, but that was the only thing. It was like, don't say scotch. Don't say, say scotch. Don't say out of my mouth. Like yeah. I was hitting puberty. Scotch, scotch. please. <laughs> and he walks me to the bar. And then I realized this man is a consummate host. 
And the most important room in the house to him is the bar. And I treated it like a religious um, pulpit Wow! when I designed it, which is, that's another story for, I don't know how much time we have. So there's the, I have a great story about starting construction in concrete. And I have another great story about cooking with him. He, he was, I know that he's a big shot. I mean, when we, when, when I started talking to him, I said, so what's your budget? Because that's a very important question. And any architect that doesn't and isn't responsible about it should be slapped. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I, and like all of my clients, I hate to ask you this, but we have to talk about money. What is your budget? And he just looked up in the sky and said, do you hear that? And I thought it was going to be a helicopter and they were coming to get us. I said, well, I don't hear anything. He said, somewhere in the world, they're playing one of my songs. I don't think we have to worry about the budget. And in, inside my heart is going, oh my God, no budget. There ended up being a budget. But at that point, I was doing backflips inside. Oh my goodness, that's good. Well, so I have to ask you, we, we do want to hear some stories. Uh, which one's more interesting, the concrete construction or the cooking story? Well, they kind of go hand in hand, to be honest oh, with that's you. Awesome. Um, so, uh, I had really just started my career at the time and I was doing something that I thought was so smart. I would walk around with a box of Ziploc bags. Okay. And go, I thought I'd walk around the construction site and I'd pick up washers and other things like that. So it would look like I was so OCD. The contractor had to pay attention to everything. (laughs) The concrete contractor at the time is... I will never find a concrete contractor like this one ever in my life. This guy had formwork that looked like cabinetry. Hmm. When I did my own house, I made him do my foundation. And I remember the inspector came to me and said, you're an architect and I'm looking at these forms and I'm telling you right now, there will be certain things that I'll just say, tell me who's doing it. If it's somebody like this and I know who they are, I'm just going to sign it. Don't worry. Wow. This guy was that good. And he's laughing at me saying, I know what you're doing, David. Don't worry. I'm going to do a good job. And all of a sudden, this white Rolls Royce drives up to the job site. Top down, four guys. You couldn't fit a fifth. I'd never, Sopranos had not been out yet, but I saw four guys that all looked the same. Slick back hair, broken nose, pockmarked face, shiny suits, skinny ties. <laughs> the guy gets out of the passenger's side, strains his tie, and he looks at the gathering group of us and says, so who's in charge? And I'm thinking, oh. uh-oh, uh-oh. And I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, what did I, did I say something to Mr. Sinatra that was going to get me in trouble? And as I'm going backwards, he goes, is the architect here. And once again, in my puberty voice, I said, I'm the architect. And (laughs) he says, we understand one of the neighbors is complaining about noise. Would you be so kind as to point us in that person's direction? Oh. Now, nobody complained about the noise. The next door neighbor on one side did say, look, I'm in entertainment. I usually get home around midnight. I get up at eight. You have every right to build I don't want to get in the way, but just can you do the quiet stuff until eight in the morning because that's when my alarm goes off. No complaint at all. Nobody said anything on the job site, but somebody must have looked. He said, thank you. They got in the car. They backed up. They went 50 feet to the next driveway. 
They pulled in. All four guys got out. Okay. They all walk it up. They knock on the door. They let themselves in. And I don't know if five minutes or five hours passed, but we're all aghast. We're all <laughs> standing there, our arms entwined, waiting for a chance to see what was going to happen. And lo and behold, they all walk out. They get in the car. They back up. They back towards us. And the passenger guy said, we've reached an understanding. You can make noise whenever you want and drove wow. off. <laughs> awesome. And I'm thinking to myself, did I just see what I thought? I and then I remembered Mr. Sinatra is that guy can know he, he would meet each one of us and in two minutes know exactly what our button was. And I said, I bet he called central casting. I bet he just called, you know, four guys and just said, hi, we work for Mr. Sinatra. Are we okay? Thank you very much. And then left. Two months later, I'm at the house and he says, hey, David, you hungry? I said, I'm Jewish. I could eat. He said, <laughs> do you like sausage and peppers? I said, I do. So I went to his kitchen. And this is a big deal for me. I like to be at people's houses. I like to see how their closets are laid out, what colors they have, what their artwork looks like. I like to see how they live. I like to see how they relax because that way I can design the proper house for them. So I was very interested more than anything in watching him cook. Was he going to have somebody from the staff do it? With, but he goes to the refrigerator, he pulls out two Ziploc bags, one with peppers, one with onions, already chopped up. So he didn't have to, they just, he, he goes to the pantry, he pulls out this authentic Italian olive oil tin, puts it in a frying pan, heats it up, puts in the onions, puts in the peppers, sautés, has a little salt, adds a little pepper, goes to the refrigerator, pulls out a white paper wrapped bag, pulls some sausages out, breaks them up, puts it in, makes it together, puts it on a plate, gives it to me and says, so, what do you think? And I took a bite and I said, I'm not kissing your ass, but this is the best sausage and peppers I've ever had in my life. He said, you want to know the secret? I said, you know I like to cook. Yeah, what's the secret? He said, the... Uh, the sausage gets flown in from Hoboken every day. <laughs> and then I thought, yeah, those weren't central casting people. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, let's kind of, I'm kind of curious. I mean, you're, you got your finger in a whole lot of things and certainly pulse on the architectural industry. Um, how has post COVID? How has the post-COVID world impacted architecture? Um, you know, it has to change customer state of mind and approach and things. Have, have you seen anything different? Yes. Oof. That's a, see, this is a really multifaceted question that I don't know if we'll know the answer to it mm. for a while, but there's a couple of things going on all at once. Um, and it's, it's COVID and it's also media and, and by media, I mean television and social media. Um, we've decided to make stars out of people like the Kardashians and whoever's on HGTV. Mm -hmm. And when HGTV started getting popular, all of a sudden these cottage barns started popping up everywhere. And it's not really a native look in Los Angeles, but it's not a native look in a lot of places. It's not a native look in Texas. Right. Um, where I'm from, but yet I see it everywhere and throw into that the financial situation where so many flippers got into the business 
20 years ago, when somebody would call me, they would call me because they wanted to move to a different neighborhood or they wanted to expand their house, but they, a real estate or make a, have a larger house. And um, the realtor would show them 20, 30 houses. They'd pick two or three they liked, call me, and I would give them recommendations. Now the 20 or 30 houses they looked at are already done. So there isn't as much work for architects, which makes architects produce work at lower fees. And there are some architects that are almost giving it away. And there's so many clients that will say, okay, you come highly recommended. What do you charge? And they care more because we now live in an Amazon instant society where you don't care about quality, you care about cost, and can you get it now? And somebody who says, and I say, well, my fee is X. They'll say, well, I know somebody can do it for half that price. What you end up getting when you hire an architect at that price is somebody who's rushing through the project so much. They're not giving you something of quality. They're not giving you something unique. They're not giving you something that works for you or the site. They're using a canned plan or worse, they'll produce a floor plan that doesn't match the elevation, that doesn't match the section, and it's a simple, dumb box, and there's no thought behind it. And I don't know about you or most of your listening audience, but I can't work that way. Mm -hmm. I once asked one of my employees who was in Los Angeles, they add a new layer to the permitting process every year. And they'd added a new low-intensity development permit that had to be obtained. And I had spoken briefly with one of my former employees, and I asked him, I called him later on, I said, hey, can you give me some more information on how to do this effortlessly? He said, let me send you some drawings. He said, but before I do, promise me you won't make a comment about it because I only got paid $10,000. So for $10,000, I got a new baby. I took it, but it's just a box. And I know even if you got $10,000, you would have done something much more elaborate. So no, no judgment, but here it is. Let's discuss it. So I find that post-COVID clients demand you do much more work for much less money or much higher maintenance. And as most restaurateurs will tell you, and most shop owners will tell you, the clients are very, very, very high maintenance. Hmm. And I just think it's the, and I don't think it's their fault. I don't think that the people are necessarily rude, mean, and short. They're just, there's a level of angst going on right now. I I think if you ask teachers, I've heard a kindergarten teacher tell me, their kids used to walk in with so much wonder and innocence and they're so jaded and high maintenance at five. So I, I hope this goes away. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's society. I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if, I don't know if people are frightened about the economy or, um, or their neighbors, but it's a little, it's a little concerning. I know that wasn't exactly what you were asking me, but no, that's good. But it's it's I it's I'd like to find a way for us to have a little more hope entwined with a little more positivity and patience. 
I, I think that's really interesting. And I, I know that, you know, I mean, I've been at, at this a while, um, about 40 years, and I know I have seen these ebbs and flows, and, and it tends to kind of go with the economy a little bit, but I, I definitely have seen these periods of time where consumers are, you know, just don't trust anybody. And yeah. so that tends to manifest in them being very difficult. Um, I, I think you actually hit the the nail on the head with that one. I think it's I think it's a lack of trust or yeah. a lack of being able to trust someone to be there for you, whether yeah. that be your architect or your fireman or your accountant or your bank. But the good thing is it does tend to go in cycles. So, you yes. know, eventually I see it turn around. But uh, you're right. This is the, one of those things that time will tell. That's for sure. I'm sorry I put this show on a little bit of a downer right now. But yeah, you know, well, it, it's, it, I think that's why, I mean, I'm luckily at a place in my career where I can try to weed out the, the, the awful clients who don't really care because then we're not we're not wasting each other's time. I mean, you you think that was very nice in the introduction. I, I, Frank Lloyd Wright once said, a client said to him, you, of course you're famous, all your clients are rich. And he scowled and said, I don't care whether I'm doing a chicken coop. If the client is open to doing something really special, I'm in. He would have said it a little more elegantly, but that's the way that I feel. Very interesting. I know, I, I think it was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright's, a guy by the name of Louis Sullivan, um, designed a bank in my hometown. And there's this story that, you know, he came and he sat on the corner and he sketched something out that didn't look at all like what a bank should have looked like in 1920 or whenever this was. And, um, you know, he said, well, that's it. That's that's what I've designed. That's what I envisioned for this corner. And uh, it's one of the most noteworthy buildings in the state at this point. Um, just really something. Louis so. Sullivan was actually Frank Lloyd Wright's mentor. And I, I, I actually, knew I, I thought I had yeah, that wrong. And, okay. and he actually, I actually have more respect for him than Frank Lloyd Wright. And I have a lot of respect for Frank Lloyd Wright. But Louis Sullivan saw things that nobody else saw but it was a little ahead of his time. So, yeah, yeah. yeah as soon as I said that, I thought, oh man, I don't remember which one it was. So thank you for clarifying that. And so it would have been before 1920, probably. Um, when you said uh, one of his, you know, one of his devotees, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm not gonna know who this guy is. And I was like, oh yeah, somebody I know. <laughs> well, good deal. Well, so, our audience here on the show consists of architects with, and also contractors, builders, remodelers. I want to talk a little bit about architects first. What would your top advice be to a young architect? I mean, how do they keep themselves sharp? Um, how do they make sure that they keep delivering the best possible value to their clients? Boy, that's and that's a brilliant question. Um, because I, it, it's so funny when you're an architect, you're really a jack of all trades. You need to know a little bit about so many different things. You know, it's so funny. Somebody was asking me of the, the tools that I use now as an architect, and I, I, I still use a lot of the same tools that I started with. And, and I think a lot of the, I, I sometimes wish that I could spend some time teaching at an architecture school because with the advent of the computer, we have people so and, and it takes a lot of expertise to get really good at using a computer. Um, but we've forgotten 
our roots and 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 what really makes design work. I remember when I was in architecture school noticing how buildings follow what the design mechanism is at the time. I mean, a lot of the Renaissance work was they built models out of wood and they built models out of stone. And so you have these intricate, thick, masterful works. And when I was in architecture school, postmodernism was in, and people were using chipboard, which is very thin cardboard, as a, 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 a model building technique. And most of the buildings looked like they were made out of cardboard when they were built because that's what they were using. I I do use my computer, but I also sketch. I have a, a, a something called a drafting pencil, which is not not a mechanical pencil. It's an it looks like a number two pencil, but it's got a very soft, thick uh, um, graphite center, which which makes it a little bit less accurate, but much more design oriented. And then, to be honest with you, there is not a project that I do that I don't build a model for because we work in a three dimensional field. And if you've ever seen an MC Escher sketch. You can see how you can draw a three-dimensional object that isn't really telling you the truth. Mm-hmm. So I remember I did a house and how it worked from the front elevation to the side elevation was never quite the way I liked it. And and I remember as it was getting built, I realized, oh, I didn't see how this went with that. And so I've been building models ever since. Um I now I use even a very very thin poster board because um, when I was out of graduate school I worked on a remodeling of a Frank Gehry building that nobody knows about because um, it was a office building in um, Baltimore and it was it, 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 he did it as a favor and he didn't want to do the re- renovation so he pawned it off to one of our professors who hired me to help him on the project and I'm looking at the drawings and I could not understand them. And I said, is it okay if I build a model of this existing space inside and outside? Cause I don't get it. And he said, sure. And so I built a model and then we started working on the expansion and he, Frank Gary stopped by the office to see how we were doing. And he walked in and said, Oh, this is interesting. You're working for model. And my boss said, yes. And he said, whose idea was this? And he looked and pointed to me and he came over to me and said, we didn't do one sketch when we designed this building. We did it all in model. How did you know? I said, I had no idea. And then he went through how they use models for everything. He was telling me, so Noel had a line of furniture that was cardboard, which really came from, there were design teams showing Frank Gehry what they should do for X project, Y project, and while the office staff and students were sitting around, they had stacks and stacks and stacks of corrugated cardboard. So they started making chairs, benches that then became chairs, that then became elaborate chairs. And the people from Knoll came over to say, let's talk about this table that you designed that we're going to sign a contract for. They said, what's this cardboard furniture? And he said, ah, we're just having fun. And they said, oh, we think we can sell it. And it became <laughs> a marketable line for a while. It was very expensive. Wow, yeah. Oh, I remember it. Yep, yep, I remember it. So I just, the answer to your question is, I I, I hate to be poetic, 
But I'm not going to give you a specific tool. I'm going to say your best tool is your mind. Stay curious about what the latest technology is because you know all of my clients now want those accordion uh, wind doors that you know used to put in glass, then you had sliders, and now you have these big folding accordions, and they're wonderful, and I love them. But as great as that is, what you really need to do is be curious about why am I going from one space to another and what's the best way to do that. I I often tell my clients, you call that a doorknob, I call it a handshake that welcomes you into the next room. And if you can think on that level, you can break down every element of a house or a commercial space or an institutional space in a way that inspires and makes a person feel comfortable. I I hate it when you go into one of those houses that has a two-story entry for no reason, and you feel like this Lilliputian speck, and you're being invited to someone's home, shouldn't you be welcome? Unless, of course, you're the tax auditor, then go away. (laughs) No, I think it's really interesting, like you said, to think about it in like a, almost a symbolic, almost a psychological, you know, how does this make the person feel? How does it impact their life? I'm doing a house in, in Houston, Texas, where Hurricane Harvey flooded entire neighborhoods that had never been flooded before. So in order to get a FEMA loan, you have to follow certain rules. The main one being the first floor is actually elevated to the 500-foot floodplain. And what's below that must be concrete, steel, glass, stone, no wood, no paint, no sheetrock, but something permanent and positive so that you can, if it floods again, you can spray it with germicide and then be done with it. And what most people do is just take a typical Monopoly style token and put it on top of a plinth. Basically, they take a Monopoly house and put it on top of the thimble and they have a steep staircase. And now your front door is way up high, like you're one of those French guards in the Monty Python and the Holy Grail movie that's (laughs) hurling cattle at you and boiling oil saying, we will not let you in. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, that's how I got the job because there's somebody that I knew who she and her husband called and said, we're interviewing architects. What should we say? And I said, tell them to tell you how you're going to create a welcoming home that your neighbor wants to borrow a cup of sugar from in this house because there's a neighborhood still and nobody had an idea. And so and it took me a long time to get to there, but I was able to d- come up with this idea of creating a lobby on the first floor that had an elevator and a spiral staircase, but it had a front door on the street. So you felt welcome. And and then the first floor floats up above it. And it it's I'm very proud of it. I think it's really lovely. It's getting built right now. And um wow. but but I had to think of it from a I just I couldn't just do a house and put it up. But the same old house, I told you before, I can't stand when people use that same formula over and over again. Now you're taking the formula and making a 50 foot tall house with the front door eight feet above the ground. I just, I, I just, it just breaks my heart. So I'm sorry that I didn't really answer your question as to, hey, do this tool, do that tool. My advice is try harder, think a little more broader, open your mind, be a human, give a gift to your client that entwines them with society and neighborhood and feeling like a human. I love it. Use your own giftedness and talent um, re- and react and respond. Give your client something that's going to be different. Love it. 
You know, Todd, I'm doing all the talking. I think it's about time you told me something. <laughs> no, no, that's just, that's not how this works. You completely missed it. <laughs> so one of the things that uh, we are happy to answer any questions, but no, one of the things that I hear you talk about um, is the fact that even though um, for a good architect, their fee may be higher, um, there's ways that they actually save the client money by making up for those fees in other ways. Would love to hear a little bit about what that means to you. And I guess furthermore, you know, how do you as an architect convince the client that, yeah, it costs you a little bit more, but here are ways that we're going to save or here are the ways that you'll get payoff in the, in the long run. God bless you, Todd. That is such a great question. <laughs> and regretfully, I can't. I will tell you some of the things that I tell my potential clients and I will still get a phone call a year later saying, oh, we didn't realize you were telling us the truth when you were giving us what the budget really would be and what we could do for the price. And so we hired this guy that promised us he could do it at X amount of dollars and we're framed and we're already at the price that you told us it will be. And we hate it. It's ugly. Oh but we thought we were getting what you pay for. And we wouldn't get a beautiful David Applebaum because but in the end, I end, I end up being less expensive than other architects. And it's because I put more time into my work. My best example of that is I was doing a, a I'm sick of, of dropping names. Plus, there's an NDA. So I did a house for an Academy Award winning actor. And he didn't have a huge budget. He had a big budget for mo what most of us would consider a budget. But for these guys living in the nicest parts of town, it wasn't the biggest budget. And, um, but it, anyway, so um, I, I said, what, and I asked what I asked Frank Sinatra, what's your budget? He told me, and I said, if you want a greenhouse, it's going to be a 6,000 square foot house. If you want a standard house, It'll be 8,000 square feet. I think I can fit what you want in 8,000. I said, and even though it's not certified green, um, you know, I went to architecture school during the energy crisis, the gas shortage and all that. I know all these passive ways that I think actually are better energy-wise than, I, later on, maybe we'll talk about the fight I got into with Caroline about how I don't like zero energy houses because they have toxic air inside. They're so sealed. There's mm -hmm. mold problems. There's air problems. And she was like, I agree with you. And then we started talking about how we would do a house or, or a commercial space in a way that would be energy efficient and healthy. And that's when we became like best friends that day. Um, <laughs> awesome. So I was kind of telling the same thing to him, but anyway, so I was doing this 8,000 square foot house and the house was pretty much done. And I drove up to the job site and this guy in his suit is pulling out and then he stops, he reverses his car and he gets out and says, you're David Applebaum, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He said, I'm, I forget his name, vice president of Great Republic Bank, which is the bank that gave loans to all these huge houses all over Los Angeles. He said, you know, for the last 15 years, you have been my favorite architect, but today I hate you. And I said, uh -oh. What? So first of all, I, I'm so embarrassed I'm no longer famous. Fa your favorite, how, what happened? He said, well, let me tell you something. We gave this guy a loan for $200 times 8,000 square feet. That's $1.6 million. You don't have an 8,000 square foot house. You're the smallest house I've given a loan for. And you've got not just two 
kids' rooms. You've got three kids' rooms and a maid's room. And you have a his and hers closet. And and he just, you have, you, you know, you have a mud room. You have a great room that's attached to the kitchen and a dining room and a living room. I don't have a house that has all the amenities that you have that isn't a minimum of 12,000 square feet. So I said, come with me. And we went to the construction trailer. I took a piece of tracing paper because that's one of my old school tools that I always bring. <laughs> and Love we it. measured Love it. It was 7,998 square feet. And he said, mm-hmm. I don't get it. How did you get 12,000 square feet into 8,000 square feet? And I said, go to those 12,000 square foot houses, walk through it again and tell me how many hallways there are. I spent weeks mm-hmm. extra because my client only had a $2 million budget. So I had to do 8,000 square feet and it was freaking impossible. But I found a way to make that 8,000 square feet work. And as you're telling me, it's 12,000 square feet worth of house for 8,000 square feet. And he said, I was so scared because you cannot get a loan in the middle of construction. It's impossible. And I was thinking, he's got 4,000 square feet times 200 square, $200 a square foot. He needs another million dollars. He's not going to get another million dollars. Not only did you save him that much money on construction, less maintenance, less air conditioning, less everything, sure. less furniture to replace. He said, you, you've saved your client at least $2 million over the next five years. Does your client know that? I said, what am I going to do? Hey, yeah. I said, you can tell him. So that's one way. And then also you get a better house. I've got a neighbor who um, I was getting my taxes done. It turns out my neighbor was doing a house, but he started before I became a neighbor and we met. Um, but he's, he's doing a house and there's a view of the ocean from his house. So you'd think that he would have all these open rooms that look at the ocean but no he hired a design build firm that made him fear that if they didn't hire him they would go so far over budget he's got a living room that looks at the ocean his kitchen does not all it would have taken was some low walls and rearrangement and his kitchen and his dining room would have views of the ocean i bet it could have even gotten his master bedroom to have had a view of the ocean but all he's got is a living room even if his house that he's living, going to live in and the one that I designed were the same price. Tell me which one will sell faster for more money and be worth more. So yeah. oh, absolutely. now I'm going to say there are a lot of architects and especially the ones that say, oh, I can do it for this discounted fee. You're going to get a box. It's not going to, and, and you're going to probably have extraneous square feet. of, And also... I have in all these years figured out ways to save money in construction because I've done it a bunch of times and I'm paranoid that I'm costing my client too much money. So I'm always at the job site saying to the concrete guy, to the steel guy, if you were to do this again, how could I do it better or for less money? You got to have an architect who does that. I can't be the only one that asks those questions and tries so hard to make it work. Good stuff. So, so one of the things you made me think about. So, so I think all of us as kids grew up. You would end up in your house that you lived, and you'd always think, "Is is there a secret place behind one of the walls in my house? Can I can I go over here and push a button, and suddenly a whole new room opens up?" And and you realize that no, that space isn't there. But the reality is, a lot of houses are designed with a lot of 
extraneous space that doesn't accomplish anything. I think you watched too much Adam West Batman. I, I probably did. Yeah, that's that's probably true. <laughs> but no, we all did. We all did. Did you rearrange furniture in your house as a kid? I did. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Even even cut out the little, you know, to scale pieces and move them around the house. And Oh, yeah, sure. So I, w- I want to accordion a little bit talking about architects, talking to talk a little bit more about builders and in particular, um, the architect builder relationship. Um, what are some of the positive hallmark or the hallmarks of a positive relationship between architects and builders? And how do you as an architect help to encourage that? Wow. Dude, you ask great questions, Todd. I'm, I'm, I'm loving, I'm having such a great time. Thank you, by the way. Ah, oh, this has been fun. You know, I, the secret is a little bit, actually, I just realized in what I just told you, um, I, first of all, if you're not having fun, you don't do good work. So there's lots of ways that I vet my contractors. Um, and <laughs> one of them, because sometimes there are contractors I've worked with before, and we have a little bit of a shorthand. And I can say, hey, remember we did it so-and-so house? Yeah. What if we did? And then, and this is based on what we built before, they'll say, oh, but what if we do this? And nine of 10 times their idea is way better than mine. And I'm willing to say that's way better than mine. And I say to the, to the owner, do you know what this guy just came up with? This is brilliant. Um, but see, that's, so it's kind of threefold. The, the first thing I do, if it's especially, if especially somebody I don't know, in the specifications, I'll always throw in a little paragraph in a very kind of unknown, um, yeah, we had a little earthquake over, not here, but there. Um, so um, we, um, so I'll put a little, little blurb in, in the specifications with something like, it's the duty of the contractor to supply the architect with a case of imported beer on the third <laughs> Thursday of every month that ends in a Y. <laughs> and um, and because that th- then you find out if they actually read the specs. Yeah. Because if they if Love they it. say what what's your favorite beer, or I don't know if we're gonna have that many, you know, um uh months that end in a Y. Months that ended then, long, you yeah. know, then, okay, it's, I said, you're lucky I didn't say days that ended long. Um, <laughs> but then we have a nice little chuckle, and I know that they are diligent and that, and that they're detail-oriented, they read. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is if I don't know the contractor, I have all these secret methods. I don't know if I should share all of them. But, you know, it's easier than you think because the, I'll, I'll say it. One of the ways that I used to do it more than anything else is there's a stone yard here in Los Angeles. And if you get sand or stone or veneer or whatever, you pretty much get it through them. And I, he's since retired, so I can't use it like I used to, but I knew a guy who was like their top salesman. Um, And I would call him and I would say, so what do you think of so-and-so contractor? And if they said never heard of them, I was wary. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We know who they are. Yeah, they're good. That was good. If they said they have an account here, a credit account, they don't have to pay cash for it. We'll bill them. They were good. They've been around a long time. And because a contractor basically has just two jobs, 
schedule like a wizard because things change. Sure. And have excellent relationships with your subs. And the way you have an excellent relationship with your subs and get the best subs is they know you're going to pay them. What clients do not realize is that the roofer will buy all this stuff and then hire guys to put it on top of the roof. Then he'll build the contractor. Then the contractor will build the client. Then the client will pay the contractor. Then the contractor months later pays the subcontractor. A contractor that pays on time or even a little bit before, those are the ones that get the best subs because they're getting paid as they're putting money out. So if you're the best electrician in Los Angeles, you want to work for the guy that pays you the best. And so why would you work for somebody you don't know? So if this supplier or a sub that you really trust says, I love working with this guy, then they're good. And then the third thing, and this is the most important thing, in my opinion, when it's, when somebody gets the job, I say, look, you have no ego. I have no ego. The client and this project is where all of the ego goes. If I don't know everything. I cannot draw everything perfectly. It's impossible. And you bid it in a month. You can't know everything. It, I know that. So you have a question, ask me. If something goes wrong, don't go running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Call me. By the way, those architects that only charge half as much, if you call them because their elevation doesn't match the floor plan, they know it. They don't answer your call. Mm -hmm. You call me, I pick up the phone and I either give you an answer or I'm in the, at the job site within 24 hours. And nowadays with FaceTime, I don't even, I can just show it to me. And then we fix it. And quite honestly, the fix turns out better than the way I thought it was going to be in the first place. And then I don't run to the client saying, hey, the contractor screwed this up and I fixed it. I say, hey, the contractor found this issue that we were able to come up with an improvement for. Look at this. And I expect the same from you. I don't want you to throw me under the bus because I'm not going to throw you under the bus. So we are here to give the client the best job in the shortest amount of time for the least amount of money. I mean, I just had one of my contractors call me and say, look, the client wants to change this thing with the doors. You know how you do those little doodle sketches? I know exactly how it goes. We've done this before. Just do one of your doodle sketches because I can't, just so I can show the client this is what it's going to look like, okay? You know how great that is? So mm -hmm. sure. that's, I, I hope that answered your question. Well, it sounds like, you know, a lot of times, even after the project is underway and started, you still find yourself on the job site. I'm not sure that's typical of a lot of architects. Is that just something you really love? Is that hands-on and seeing it actually come to, re to reality? I don't know. That's a good question. I only know what I do. And I, I mean, I have clients that move in and six months later say, you know, I'm out of town. Here's the alarm code. Would you help? Because... I still get invited to dinner at a lot of my clients' uh, houses. I've maintained friendships with quite a few of my clients. Um, you know, not all of them, but certainly if I see them, um, there's hellos and hugs and things like that. I, that's that. That's even the way that I bill. A lot of clients front end their billings, and I have my billing running through a small amount through the through the entirety of the of the contract. Oh wow, that that is different. Love it. Because I just I I'm there. I like you know, I I like 
you know, maybe it's because I don't want all that mad money. But um, I, uh, I just think that uh, a major reason why I do that is because it, it reminds them that I'm still there. And if they have a question or they have a problem, they know to call on me and I'm, I'm still there. Well, I'm kind of curious. So, you know, of course, the name of our show is Construction Disruption, and we look at a lot of things, technologies and products that are kind of disrupting things. As, as you look back on your career and, and even look out into the future, anything comes to mind as far as things that have really been major game changers in either design or construction or things that you think are going to be game changers and new trends that we're seeing that are going to change things uh, down the pike the next 10, 15 years? Besides the, I would love the game changer to be a little more patience and, uh, and, mm. and pleasant conversation. It, that's interesting because you say that to me and I remember the first thing that blew me away and it was kind of when I started was there's this product called Bitutheme, which was a, you know, an elastic membrane that you could punch a nail in and it was still waterproof. Um, right. I, I have to tell you um, a lot of, so funny. I just had this conversation with Caroline this week because <laughs> she said, somebody said, Hey, you'd like living in this house. And she sent me the picture said, what do I think about this? Cause it had this polymer polymer material cladding on the outside and we spent 30 minutes discussing how we did not trust the waterproofing and the water weeping and that there wasn't condensation behind the exterior cladding and it it's a beautiful material and it clicks in and all but i just i don't know how it can both be waterproof and breathe if it's i mean she lives in the northeast and you know, there are days where it's 10 degrees outside, but it's seven degrees inside and that wall in between right. is going to have condensation. I'm, I don't, if there's a brand new material, I kind of don't like using it until it's been on the market for at least 10 years. I remember when I was a kid, there was this kind of prefabricated plaster wall. I don't want to mention any names because uh, they may have fixed it or something, but every single house or commercial space that used it ended up with two or three inches of mold inside the walls um, after 10 years. And we're so interested in fixing one thing, like let's save another, you know, let's add another insulation factor of, of 3%. But what that ends up doing is creating hazardous air or mold or the fasteners were not exactly specified correctly, and now they're um, uh, they're rusting and falling apart. You know, it's it's. I live in earthquake country, and there's nothing better than a Type Five wood structure in an earthquake because wood works both in compression and tension, and its connections, which are usually nailed, are allowed to rotate around the fastener. So even in a massive earthquake where a couple of timbers, a couple of studs or a couple of uh, connections might fail, the rest of the house holds together and you're safe. Right. I've been told that there are a lot of buildings in downtown Los Angeles that an earthquake has put a little bend here or a little pucker there. And, you know, you can stand on a Coca-Cola can and it'll support you. You know what happens when you put your two fingers sure. from both sides and hit it at the same time? 
Yeah, go down. Yeah. So I guess I'm an old fangled guy. Well, and, and it's interesting. I mean, over the years, I've had lots of people come to me with, you know, hey, Todd, I see this new roofing product or this new wall product or window product or whatever out. And, you know, a lot of times I can look at it and I can kind of make my guess as what's going to happen. But usually my feedback is, hey, before you go that direction, wait 10 years. Let's see whether the product is still made or if it's a class action lawsuit. <laughs> and then you can make your decision. I'm so relieved that I'm not the only one. You, you you manufacture metal roofings. Tell me something. The metal roofings that you made 40 years ago that were assembled correctly with the right pitch and that beautiful assembled on site, they still work, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's all about being able to have some allowance for the thermal movement mm -hmm. of the metal. Um, to some degree for the movement of the structure as well. But uh, no, I mean, I can, well, in fact, I can take you to communities near where we live and show you metal roofs that date back to the turn of the century, not the 21st century, yes. but the turn of the, of the 20th century. And they're still I'm there. I'm from Texas. There's so many buildings out in the prairie that have metal roofs that are still standing from back then. And is there... Come on, is there anything more romantic than rain falling on a metal roof? The sound <laughs> is is beautiful. And um, yeah, it's, it's uh, which you then bring up, look, I get DIYers. And I think there are a lot of things that we can all do ourselves. And I do a lot of things myself. But I won't touch electrical at all. <laughs> I'm there I will with not you. touch I plumbing unless it's I mean, really simple. I, I put a reverse osmosis under my sink that I could do. Took a couple of trips to the hardware store to get the right thing. <laughs> and a real plumber would have had it the first time. But like, yeah, I could probably put up a metal roof myself. But if I really wanted to save money, this actually goes back to your architecture thing. If I want to save money over the next 50 years, I hire you. Well, and, and we see so much of that in the trades, too, that, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll always kind of tell the story about the contractor who tries to make up his profit margin by hiring cheaper labor. Oh, boy. And, you know, that's that's the last guy you want. Yeah. Uh, I'd rather pay more up front to know that he's going to hire reliable labor than uh, have him making his, trying to make his profit that it, way. And it's sometimes even, well, I, <laughs> I had a project manager and you'd be shocked at how little with all the experience they came with they, they totally um i don't even want to get into it it was I, I after a month of them working on the project it's funny i actually after this i made my office smaller not bigger frank gary had said to me you know it's funny how architecture works in your 20s you work for nothing and your 30s you're still working as a slave but now you got some responsibility in your 40s you kind of figure out what you're doing and maybe you go have a couple of side projects. And then maybe if you're, if you're lucky enough, you put a shingle out and then in your fifties, you're back to working for nothing again, because you're, you know, you, you, you're trying to get it just right. Your sixties are when you get your voice, figure out what you're doing. And it's your seventies when you're so old that you get more calls than you know what to do with. And, but I, but when I, I was thinking about that when I had this person who in a, in a month had ruined a project. They, you know, if you draw a first floor and a second floor, the staircases should be in the same place. Because if they're not, you'll go up from the first floor and hit your head on the ceiling. And if you're on the second floor, you'll go right and drop into the kitchen. And, um, and so I had to fire this person and thought it's going to take me a month to fix it. I fixed it in a day. 
and I realized, you know what, this is my name out there. So from now on, the project architect is me and I'll only take as much work as I can stay on top of because that matters mm. to me more than making a big profit. You know, that's a great criteria for someone to ask, to ask who may be interviewing an architect as well. I love that. Yeah, I don't know of another architect who's got a, a, a practice with as much experience as mine that doesn't. I remember I interviewed with somebody who said, oh, I want a famous modern architect. I said, well, my work is as good as theirs. And they're like, yeah, but they get coffee table books. I said, well, that's because I don't want to put your pro my profits from your job in a coffee table book. I want to put my money into going and making sure your house is great. I said, you realize you're going to go to so-and-so famous architect with the coffee table books. He's never going to look at your project. You're going to get mm -hmm. some guy who's five years out of school, you know, as your project architect, because he's got too much work to really pay attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Well, David, this has been fantastic. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, we actually are close to wrapping up what we call the business end of things. I'm curious, is there anything we haven't covered yet that you'd really like to share in today's episode? I will rather ask for another opportunity to talk to you because there's way too many. We got to do that. Uh, you're, you guys are great. I Sorry, I'm from Texas. Y'all are great. I had a lot of fun. And <laughs> this has been... I've been here long enough. I've I've lost my y'all, oh. and I don't mean the sailboat. <laughs> so, so were you in the Houston area, or where did where did you grow up at then? Yeah, I um. So, uh, my my father is from New York. You can pretty much tell in my energy. Yeah. Um, but uh, he had the opportunity to go to Rice at that time. Rice was free. Wow, and it was a great school. And and when I was born, there were two hundred thousand people in Houston. By the time I went to college, there were over two million. Mm. It just grew the, the advent of air conditioning plus the space center plus plus the energy um, uh, uh, business going through there. It was just a bustling town that he knew if he stayed, he'd have some success. And he was right. Well, Houston's one of my favorite cities. So, uh, yeah, here uh, I love hearing that. Good stuff. Well, before we close out, I have to ask if you're willing to participate in a little something we call our rapid fire questions. So, David, this is seven questions, maybe serious, maybe silly. All you have to do is give a short answer. Our audience I'm incapable of a short answer. You know that. No, that you know, we take long answers, too. We really do. Um, <laughs> so our audience needs to understand if David agrees this, he doesn't have a clue what we're going to ask. So up to the challenge of rapid fire. No, but I'll do it anyway. Awesome, thank you. Well, we're we're pretty harmless. I we'll we'll rotate asking. Um, you want to ask the first one, Ethan? Yeah, yeah, I can start with the first one. Okay. Um. Okay. Question one: What do you like to do in your spare time? Hike. I I, I live in a sun. Even though it's been raining so much this year, and it made me very sad. But the sun is out today, and there's nothing I love more than going on at least a thirty minute walk. I put on my headphones. And sometimes I, if I'm busy, I'll do my, save my emails for that, but just to get outside and reconnect, it's so grounding and inspiring at the same time. Well, thank you for spending this time with us rather than being out hiking like you could have been today. So who says I'm not? Oh, okay. Well, maybe so. <laughs> Question number two. Um, 
if you find yourself trying to survive a zombie apocalypse, <laughs> who is the one? <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm just, I actually had a client that asked me to design a zombie couple apocalypse oh, yeah. proof house. So I, I couldn't help but laugh. Please oh, finish my goodness. <laughs> well, who is the one person you would definitely want on your team? Wow. Ooh, if there was a zombie, <laughs> you know, that's a very tough one. Because my first thought is, um, I, 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 I hate to say this, um, but I, I'm wondering if I want, see, I've got so many things I'm thinking of. I, I want to invite somebody like um, Emeril Lagasse, a great chef, so that no matter where we are, we can eat well. But also, yeah. <laughs> you know, quite honestly, uh, he or that guy from Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, oh, God Guy Fieri. Fieri, who I adore, they're also kind of plump. And, you know, if you need to, you can have a meal out of that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but in reality, I, I probably want somebody who could uh, run really fast and is strong enough to carry me on a piggyback. There you go. So um, I need to think. Of, I don't know any Navy SEALs, but I'd probably take a Navy SEAL. That's different because I would have tended to think I want someone who runs really slow. Um, (laughs) 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 Oh, we've we've had answers for that question every place from grandmothers to Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I I love your answer. Well, early Arnold Schwarzenegger, maybe, but not now. Well, even though they they did make that caveat. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He does have a lot of motorcycles, so that might help. (laughs) All righty, question three. Okay, this is a fun one. What is one product you bought in recent years that was a game changer for you? So it could be something small, something big, whatever. Wow. That's actually a tough one. What did I buy that was a game changer? Well, I'm a carnivore. I love eating a really great steak. And um, a friend of mine recommended that I get one of those vacuum sealers. Mm, And you can age. You buy a steak and you vacuum seal it and age it for two weeks, and it becomes this wonderfully tasty um, um, prime A. Even if you bought choice, it comes out like a prime-aged steak, and that's been pretty great. So that's that's the first thing that comes to mind. I also, I got some shoes that have really nice insoles for my hikes, and that's been a game changer. Um, (laughs) And uh, Costco has a really good four-ply toilet paper. That has spoiled me as a game changer. So. <laughs> oh, those are great answers. What What's the brand of? You said boots or shoes. What What? I'm curious. What? The, let's give a shout out to them. Well, I mean, I I I, I hate to be a uh, you know. Let's all climb on you know on board. But uh, um, they were Nikes. Oh wow, awesome! I, I, so you know, it's so funny. For a while there, I was very much into. Um, uh, Sketchers because they were the only ones that had a memory foam yeah, sole, yeah. and boy, that was that was so great. But then they wore out. They, I do so much walking. I guess after like six months, I couldn't wear them anymore. Yeah. I I found that the Nikes with their new foam soles last much longer, and um, so I'll have to check those out because I I wear Sketchers because of the memory foam and you're right six months and I'm getting a new pair. Yeah, I I remember when I first got them, I was going to a Dodger game with a friend and I said, I'm having so much fun walking from the parking lot because I'm walking on air. (laughs) Um, And then like, you know, we went to another game months later and said, so how are those shoes? said, "Eh, not so good this time. Okay, question number four. I think it's my turn again. Um, 
Yeah, I get the fun ones. If you had to eat a crayon, what color of crayon would you choose to eat? Well, wouldn't the normal answer be lime, just in case? <laughs> just in case. Lime green. Um, wow. That makes um, sense. Now that I'm thinking about it, though, lime green is good because it's it's such a happy color. Mm-hmm. But then you eat. I I don't know about you. I remember my childhood. I ate plenty of crayons, um, <laughs> and they all taste the same. So um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I might be tempted to want to say white because I would because um, at least it looks like it tastes. Well, and that's the second person who said white because it wasn't going to mark their teeth actually, so that they w- <laughs> no one would know that they that they ate a crayon. <laughs> oh, I'm very proud. Uh, next time you see me, who knows? I might have a crayon stuck between my teeth, and you, you will be the only one that will know. Oh, especially if it's lime green. <laughs> All right, next one here. Nothing major here, but uh, what would you most like to be remembered for? Wow, um, that's really simple. Um, good father. No, mm. oh, awesome. Love it. Love it. That's that's you know. So when I told you I I made my office smaller, it wasn't just because of the quality of the work, my now ex-wife and I had just become pregnant and I didn't want to be a workaholic. And I'm proud to say that I never missed a game, a concert, a poetry reading when he was growing up. And I wouldn't trade that for the world. Good stuff. Okay. Next to last question. Um, Really? That's I thought there were a bunch of them. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, we're already there. This is the sixth question already. So this one you may have to think about, but I think it's kind of a cool question. Um, What non-family friend has been a regular part of your life for the longest time? So someone you're not related to who has been a, you know, we talk a time or two a year um, part of your life. Uh Oh, he's thinking. No, I'm, I'm not thinking. I'm actually trying really hard not to choke up. Uh, and, and this question, yeah, I understand. And it's and it's only because um, there's actually been two, and they're both gone. Um, I'm I'm oh, sorry I'm to sorry. say that 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 two really special people are no longer with us. Um, I my college friend Bruce, who I am the luckiest guy in the world because he passed away unexpectedly on a Sunday, and for some reason I was stuck on something at work on a Friday, and I, instead of, I, I'm, I'm big on if you can't fix it, take it, walk away from it, and you'll come back to it. And I called him, and we spoke for about two hours. And when it was all, we were coming to the end, I said, oh, I got to get home. My wife's expecting me. And because um, his daughter had a volleyball game. And, you know, I said, hey, you know, uh, you were really there for me at some specific times in my life that were really important and helped me through. And I love you like a brother. Mm. And he said, I love you, too. Let's talk again soon. And two days later, he was gone. Wow. So um, and then I had a friend. um, One of the first really great projects I worked on was the Esprit store in West Hollywood, which is now a CVS drugstore, which is such a shame. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, but the guy in charge of all visuals at Esprit was this six foot two, 300 pound Chinese man, Philip Kwok. And he flew in from Hong Kong because the the place was beautiful and it was just so dingy. There was something about it. It wasn't working. And the owner of the, of the Esprit stores, the Esprit line, the company, the clothes and his wife, the designer, her best friend was Philip. And he did not want to call Philip. He didn't want to admit he needed Philip. And all of a sudden, this big, huge guy 
comes in one evening, hey, he just flew in, he's got jet lag, um, and I shook his hand. And then the next morning, because it was kind of design build at the end, and I was there every single day. I would I would get there at six in the morning and give to present drawings to the builders that were going to do stuff, spend the whole day walking the site, looking at what was wrong, and then spend up until 11, 12 o'clock at night drawing it so that I'd have whatever I needed for the people the next morning. And there he was in a corner of the building with a little assistant, and he was starting to just disassemble and reassemble everything. And you know how when you're in the desert and it's sunrise and it's dark behind you, but in front there's a little peaking light, and with each second the, the, the sun rises and the light creeps into the ground as it gets closer and closer to you, as he worked, it was just like that. It was just the transformation was so clear. And after it was about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and he'd already done like almost a quarter of it, it was, it, I could tell. And I walked over to him and I said, you stand up right now. You stand up and look in my eye, looking really upset and frustrated. I said, because I have to tell you, and he stands up, this huge oh. guy, and he's got fear in his eyes. Like, because I have to tell you that this space what the hell do you think you're doing making it look so good? I have to hug you. I cannot believe this place looks as good with you fixing it. And I hugged him and we became the closest of friends. We spoke, and those were days before cell phones and, and emails made international communication. So we would fax each other. No, oh, yeah. Because that was only, you know, 20 cents. And we would all, so he was in Hong Kong and I was in Los Angeles. And we had, we would end all of our conversations and, and faxes with the term touching the water. Cause it was like, if I touch the water here, it'll get to you and you can feel me. Wow. And he would do the same. And it was, um, it was, he, he was a very good friend. He just, he ended up wanting to be a restaurateur and I designed his restaurant in Hong Kong and he would come here and buy jeans and fifties furniture and, and send it to Hong Kong and, you know, sell it to his friends. It was I miss them both a lot, and thank wow. you for a trip down memory lane, and I'm sorry it was a little maudlin. No, thank you for sharing some real life, personal stuff Happy there. memories life. entwined yep. with, uh, you know, yeah. with sad. A little bittersweetness. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is there another question that we can have some laughter on? Yeah, this one, okay, I was going to say, this one's a, little, a, a lot more lighthearted. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah. Um, okay, so when you're eating a bagel, do you prefer the top or the bottom half? Like the one with all the seeds on it, or do you like the, the bigger part on the bottom? Well, I happen to like pumpernickel bagels, which don't really... But uh, that's a that's a genius question, because even without the seeds, I like the top, because the top is usually a little fluffier on the inside, even after you toast it. Yeah, I'm very much a top half. So I'm a top. Yep, yep. What about you, Ethan? We, we 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 know Todd likes the top and I like the top. Are you going to be contrarian? I am a little bit because I like that the bottom is like a lot thicker. It's a lot more like, I don't know, not meat, you know what I mean? But a lot more like substance to it. I do like the bottom. Well, then you cut yours differently than mine, Ethan, because I always cut yeah. the top. See, maybe because I like the top, I make the top thicker. So I get what you like. Could be. Yeah, it could be. Honestly. Good stuff. Well, this has been a pleasure. So um, we need to recap our challenge words. I don't, I, I'll tell you, this conversation was so fun. I just lost track. I didn't even see them get used. I know I had to use, I used the word accordion. I worked in, um, David, you used my word a couple of times. So you 
beat me out of that. I think he had the record for the most uses of challenge words. <laughs> he does. Well, and I also threw in me. I also threw in. Oh, 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 I threw in yours that I gave you, and I threw in. We had a secondary one that I threw in as well. That you, you actually. I don't know if you realized you used my word once. I did. You did. It was great. I thought, oh, sneaky Todd. <laughs> I didn't even realize it. <laughs> so, Ethan, you had the word major. Did you work that in? Yeah, I did. Oh, I said so right smooth. before one of my rapid fire questions. I said nothing major. Yes. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. And you, you, you used both. You used my one. Of, you used the word. I are we allowed to say them now? Yeah, yeah. So, Todd, you. So, yes, Ethan you used major once. Todd, you used major once and used accordion once. Yeah. I don't know if you realize it. I do know I used accordion. Yeah, I I don't. Who knows on the other stuff? No, you did. But you got in. You got entwined in there at least once. So good job. I think I got in about five times. I was gonna say, yeah, I think you did. Too. Yeah, and I said major <laughs> once, and I said accordion once. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're an overperformer, overachiever. Good stuff. Yeah, well, that's why I'm single. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that 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 can be the next episode, maybe too. I don't know, but we'll we'll do another episode. We'll look forward to this. So again, this has been a real pleasure and eye opening. Um, if folks want to get in touch with you or just follow what you're up to, um, what's the best way for them to do that, David? Well, uh, I'm on Facebook as both David Applebaum and David Applebaum Architect. I'm on Instagram. I I think I'm David Applebaum underscore Architect. You know what? I'm going to look it up, but. I'm also David at David Applebaum Architect. Um, so let's see. I am, um, my official account is David Applebaum underscore architect. And um, I post pictures of some of my projects and things that I find that are important and inspiring um, oh, awesome. on occasion. I also have a personal one, which is uh, uh, David Applebaum dot official, which is, I, that's got more of, my own house, funny things that I see. It's a little bit less architectural, a little bit more, if you can believe that I can be silly, a little silly. <laughs> oh, we love that. <laughs> well, this is good. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes as well so folks can see it and easily link and so forth. So, Thanks. This has been, this has been a really one in a million experience for me. You're, I, I have to say you're, prepared and you're funny and you're insightful and have a lot of perspective and you really move well on your feet, the both of you. And this is, uh, it feels like we've only been on for five minutes and I've really enjoyed every second of it. Well, you did a great job and it's a lot of fun for us too. And uh, so thank you so much for being a guest today. And yeah, that's what we always strive for is to try to be listenable and fun, but yet deliver some great information. And you did that. So thank you. And I will also thank our audience um, for tuning into this episode of Construction Disruption with architect David Applebaum, architect to the stars. Um, please watch for future episodes of our podcast. We're always blessed with great guests just like today. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Until the next time we're together, keep on disrupting and don't forget to have a positive impact on everyone you encounter. Make them smile, encourage them to simple yet powerful things we can all do to change the world. God bless and take care. This is Isaiah Industries signing off until the next episode of Construction Disruption. This podcast is produced by Isaiah Industries 
manufacturer of specialty metal roofing and other building products.